Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. From the gas pump to the grocery store. Inflation is everywhere. Seriously, make it stop. Thankfully, there's one company out there that's giving you a much-needed break. It's Mint Mobile. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you order from home and save a ton with phone plans starting at just $15 a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, and get the plan shipped to your door for free. Go to mintmobile.com slash switch. That's mintmobile.com slash switch. I'm so excited to tell you a bit about today's sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, Music Masters Collective hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, Oteil Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of Upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available, but spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com backslash inside to learn more. Osiris. Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Musician's Brain. I'm your host, Chris Pandelfi from the infamous String Dusters, and this is episode 20, the last episode in season two. Had some really amazing guests this season, Sarah Jarose, Ronnie McCurry, Sarah Watkins, my man Oteil Burbridge, Oliver Wood, Molly Tuttle, the guys from Goose, Chris Eldridge, and today's guest, Graham Lesh of Midnight North. Really, really cool band. We've been lucky to play many shows with those guys, and they have a really incredible new record out. We're going to talk all about that here in a moment. Inside the Musician's Brain is brought to you by Osiris Media. Osiris has been with me every step of the way over here, and they're behind some really incredible podcasts. Check them out. Also brought to you by Americana Vibes. That's the String Dusters' new record label, and we have all kinds of cool things coming your way via Americana Vibes. And our sponsor this season, EMG Pickups. Can't say enough great things about EMG. I met Rob Turner, who started EMG years ago, and we've worked together. Well, he's done most of the work creating an amazing banjo pickup, the ACB barrel that I've had in my banjo for years now. And it's not an easy instrument to amplify, but they've really come up with a dependable, Great sounding pickup, and they have incredible pickups for all sorts of instruments, acoustic and electric. So check out EMG for all your pickup needs. Okay, before we get to my interview with Graham, I'm going to talk really quickly about the crazy situation surrounding the live music world. Again, things have just gotten absolutely insane. Obviously, COVID is having a resurgence, and though there was a lot of optimism early summer, now there's a lot of question marks again, a lot of question marks about live in-person events. Meanwhile, artists, venues, fans, crews, everyone in that live music world just wants to keep the music going. So yeah, things are just insane again, but it's a new insanity now, right? Because we're not in the same position that we were last spring last summer where we shut everything down out of an abundance of caution and that was the right thing to do until we figured out just what was going on 
Well, now we actually have a very viable solution via a vaccine that, while not a perfect solution, it's keeping people from getting really sick. And that's the critical metric. And this can work if everyone who wants to go to shows would get on board. But somehow there's more division now than ever before. And so much of that, the division, the blowback can be felt in the live music industry where it seems like artists have like been thrust into this uncomfortable role of public health policymakers, or at least responsible for those policies. And that is a role that we should never, ever have to take on. So why right now, when we have a viable roadmap to keep live music going, keep shows going, why is there so much controversy, so much angst surrounding live music again? Well, slightly rhetorical question, but these are these are good questions to ask, I think. Why is there so much backlash, you know, to artists and venues requiring proof of vaccination or in some cases a negative test? Why do people feel that it's their unquestionable right to attend any show regardless of rules that are just following the prevailing public health policy guidelines, right? Who gets to make the rules at a given show? Pretty sure I know the answer to that one. Why is telling someone that they can't attend a certain event because they might pose a health risk to others or to themselves, why is that an attack on freedom? Like who came up with that? This is not, we're not talking about a right to vote or exercise free speech. We're talking about a damn concert. It's a privilege to attend an event like this, not a right. And when you do attend, you're absolutely at the mercy of the rules of the venue or the event or the band rules that are designed to keep the attendees safe, because that's part of what we need to do when, you know, like I say, we're in the business of throwing parties and it's just like any business, you know, or residence or anything where you're on someone else's turf and someone else's terms, no shirt, no shoes, no service. So some rules have been made. And to me, and I think to a lot of people, there are very sensible, simple rules. And the last few weeks have seen a lot of changes in the music industry. And now proof of vaccination, and in some cases, proof of a negative test, have basically become the standard across all of the industry's biggest promoters, venues, bands, AEG, Live Nation, Fish, Panic, the list just goes on and on. It's just become totally ubiquitous. And I can tell you that it's definitely been a relief for us, the string dusters, to see everything trend this way because it just makes us feel better about throwing these shows, throwing these large in-person events and making sure that they're safe, that, that you guys are safe, that we're safe. So you'd think that this broad support would send a message that this is the right thing to do. And also the clearest path for all of us musicians to keep working right now, which is important. But no, that would be much too simple. And instead we have this, this endless amount of backlash, just this mess, this chaos of opinions. It's like it's everywhere right now when really all all we're trying to do is is keep people safe you know if the fans the people who work at the venues and to that end just like any other business we have rules that dictate how we're trying to accomplish that and you know we make those rules based on the best information that we have the best judgment and like for example the barricade that you see that keeps people from getting up on stage i don't hear anyone complaining about that as an attack on their freedoms and we've all seen what happens to the hammered guy who jumps the barricade and gets on stage. It's not, it's not good for him. He broke the rules. He paid the price, not the other way around. Still backlash everywhere. People saying that they're being discriminated against and they want to make their own rules, I guess. And it's their right to come to shows no matter what. But man, that's just, that's just not how it works. And we're all getting pretty sick of that part of the equation right now. You know, we missed a lot of work, potentially risk losing more work. So our main objective is really just to to keep going and to to keep working and also to bring the art that we've poured so much of our lives into creating to keep bringing that to the people who need it right now. 
And it, it kind of reminds me of that recurring situation we see in the music world sometimes where a fan tells an artist to leave their politics out of their music. And isn't that my decision to make? And then pretty sure you get to decide whether you listen or not. You know, so somehow, sometimes we, you know, we, we kind of get that thing backwards. And, you know, I think really all this music industry backlash is just a microcosm of the bigger picture where everyone in our society feels like they're entitled to their own rules. They're entitled to do what they want. And it's just so indicative of how individualism reigns in this country. And while at times that can be a great strength, it's also proven to be a real challenge in certain situations like this pesky global pandemic that keeps just grinding on. And people, I think, forget that the social societal experiment that we live in requires us to keep each other's interests in mind. Whether you like it or not, we function as a group. We rely on each other. We follow the basic rules that hold everything together. Those are called laws. You follow them daily. And we respect the reality that we're all interconnected. You know, every time you drive down the street, use your phone, go to the store, do just about anything, we rely on each other to make those things happen. And somehow, so many of us are just obsessed with our individualism and what, what we want. And we're really not that great at sacrificing anything in the name of other people's welfare. I'm not speaking for everyone, of course, but there is a good chunk of people in this country who that certainly holds true for. And those people want to go to their concerts. They don't care about the rules. But sorry, this is a very, very imperfect situation here. And we are all so sick of this. And we're just doing the best with the information that we have. And believe me when I say musicians do not want to be in this position at all. So take it easy on us. Throw us a bone already. We're, we're, we're working out here. We're trying to to keep the gigs going and everybody thinks tour is just some big party, but we got a business to run and, Oh, I want to get on stage next week and next month and the month after I'm not, I'm not ready to shut this thing down again. So let's all work together, people. Let's respect each other and let's, uh, yeah, let's work together to get on the other damn side of this thing. Come on. All right, end rant. I just had to get all that off my chest. It's, oh man, crazy time to be alive, crazy time to be a musician. All right, let's get on to my interview with Graham. Love this guy, love Midnight North. They have really become close homies of the String Dusters, and they've got this absolutely stellar new record out. Really, really fun to catch up with Graham Lesh. Here we go. When it all has come and gone. Just an image long forgotten From a moment hard won If I told you how it ended Would you do it all again? In that moment Saw the stars fall All right, we're here on Inside the Musician's Brain and my guest today is an amazing singer, guitar player and a member of the up-and-coming band Midnight North whose new record, There's Always a Story, is just phenomenal. Graham Lesh, welcome to the podcast, brother. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. Good to talk. Yeah, absolutely, man. So how how are you? How are things going? Uh, everything's good. Um, we're talking in, I guess, mid-August now, and, uh, you know, everything's sort of settled down um, from the, crazy of the craziness of the beginning of the summer, and then we just put out our record and uh, had that craziness, and... Um, I did some other shows and now I'm back home and decompressing a little bit and uh, yeah, just trying to stay safe out there and also, you know, play some music at the same time. Yeah, it's a crazy world we live in right now yeah. and, um, you know, it's, it's amazing how dynamic the situation is, but you guys have been active and playing some shows this summer and, and have some more stuff coming up as well, correct? Yeah, we... We kind of got really lucky with our timing. We planned a big outdoor thing, uh, just a run of shows for a few weeks in in early June, um, and we'd been you know planning it basically for eighteen months. Um, you know, as soon as yeah. uh, 
but really from from last fall we were just like oh looking at the timing of everything it just sort of worked out and uh we missed the delta wave uh we we beat that <laughs> and uh, uh but still we're able to get out there and and be vaccinated and be you know mostly outdoors and safe and just playing music again it was so wonderful um and yeah then uh we've got some some uh big big tour planned in october as well when it seems like the whole world is is going to go back out and <laughs> that's right and jam a little bit every band in the world is putting out a yep. record at the same time going on tour yep. at the same time these are these are some of the things we're dealing with right now but <laughs> yeah it was great to see you guys by the way yes. when we were out at terrapin crossroads graham and elliot uh, from midnight north came down and Sat in with us both nights. Your dad was there one night, yeah. killing it on Shakedown. Like, what a beast! I mean, yeah, you know, I I I saw him sitting there side stage and didn't even touch the bass until he he came on stage. Why <laughs> Why would he? You know, why would he? And then totally, he's at, <laughs> he's basically at home there. So that's right. You know, that's, that's right. all he that's all he needs. Pick it up and he's ready to go. You guys have cultivated such a cool thing out there at. At Terrapin Crossroads. I mean, it's just, it's this music haven, this oasis. And I always get this sense when I'm there that the people who live in the area, who, of course, many of them are Grateful Dead fans and, you know, huge music fans in general, but they've just got this amazing place that brings bands that wouldn't always necessarily play at a venue that mm. size, but there's a draw that's that's bigger than just the venue or the potential crowd. I mean, it it's got to be so cool for you to just have been a part of that ride for recent years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Midnight North like started right at the same time that Terrapin did, and um, or when and the when, idea when for was Terrapin. That? Uh, Terrapin first opened in March of 2012, okay. and that's like within a few months of when I started jamming with Elliot and Connor. Oh wow! Okay. Um, uh, and sort of starting what would become Midnight North. So we kind of like had that that bar stage that isn't open now, um, as our, like, uh, I mean, rehearsal studio is the wrong word, but you know, our, our, our place to just be playing all and making music all the time and, and now that's developing. The that's the stage that's in the, the restaurant. In the restaurant area. Yep. And Which then, isn't open now. And, um, right. Uh, there's now the three stages and two of them aren't, aren't open at the moment. Um, there's just the outdoor stage, which is where you played, and that's right. amazing. But you know, uh, coming up with that was, I mean, it was formative for us, yeah. and um, it gave us the chance to play with everyone in the scene who was yeah. coming through. Um, you know, we got in the early days. John Grayboff uh, was there a lot. Uh, Neil Casal, um, uh, you know. Uh, a lot of our friends and folks who were playing with my dad would come through and, yeah. um, and we would, me and Elliot and Connor and Midnight North would play with them, my brother and Ross James and, you know, Oliver, it just grew this community. Um, and that's sort of what it is now. I, there, there was this community locally as well that just is, has never left and has sort of coalesced around that physical space. Of yeah, Tarkin. it's very, it's very tangible. And, and you mentioned, you know, mm -hmm. a few of the great musicians. I know a few times I've been there, I've had the amazing opportunity to hear Barry Sless just yes. rip. Well, he's local. So yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, I mean, we've known him. He's been in Phil and Friends is, you know, back in the day. Barry's amazing. Yeah. He's, he's and incredible. And now with, mostly with Moon Alice, um, w which also features a bunch of our other yeah local friends yeah it's it's a really yeah. beautiful scene and we love coming out there i always love to see the boats that anchor up to catch yeah. the show from uh, the from phil the tilla canal. they call that's it that's right yep. the phil tilla yeah <laughs> so let's let's talk about your guys new record um, yeah there's always a story this is a tremendous record man i i, I know i mentioned to you earlier i listened yeah. to it when it first came out but in preparation for the podcast, I gave it a few more listens, and I'm just blown away, man. It's got everything. It's got tremendous songwriting, you know, great performances, great singing, great playing, and and really, really top-notch production as well. So, congratulations, first. Yeah, of all. thank you. Yeah, um, I mean, as you probably know, the process of recording a record in in 2020 was, uh, you know, uh, a, a difficult one, and uh, or. It, I mean, there were good and, uh, good and bad parts, but... 
So take um, us through I, it. How how yeah, did it I'm how had, did it go down for you guys? Well, we did the the vast majority of it in uh, January of 2020 before okay. everything. Um, and we had actually in in early March, Elliot and I, with our producer David Simon Baker, um, we had just finished up like some of the overdubs, and we were probably around 90% tracked. Okay. Um, and then you know we kind of all got sheltered in place in different yeah. parts of the of the country, and so we did a little bit of um, sort of like home recording, um, and. Uh, Elliot and Nathan, who were both in Pennsylvania, um, Elliot, uh, we met our dear friend, uh, Damien Calcane, who has a studio called the Pine Box in, uh, in Northern New Jersey. Uh, and so it was kind of close to both of Elliot and Nathan, so they could go and sort of do some overdubs there. Gotcha. Um, and so, just, so- you know, send everything back to to DSB to Dave and so uh, you guys had most everything. of the you guys had most of the basic tracks done from sessions mm-hmm. before quarantine hit yeah and you guys just tracked those live as a band in the studio and then it was then a matter of yeah adding parts harmonies fixing absolutely things, that kind of yeah stuff. okay yeah exactly um, and you know personally for me I was able to do stuff right here at my house just plugged into my computer sure um, and then I would send the tracks to Dave on guitar, the guitar tracks to Dave, and he would, he would just you know reamp them and make them sound sound good. But it, you know, for, uh, that like last five ten percent of of the guitar stuff, like for me, it was really great to just sit with the songs and um, just sculpt them just that little bit more. Um, and I think it really helped the the composition of of. Uh, the guitar parts and and a lot sure. of the harmonies as well, stuff like that. The the main songwriting had been done, and we weren't really, uh, for the most part, adding you know big seg- sections or anything, yeah. making big changes. But the little tweaks were like such a push it over the edge yeah. for me. It um, shows just being able to sit with them and yeah. not having to like go into the studio and and come up with something and execute at the same time. Sometimes that pressure. Uh, I think for all of us is um, is yeah a little a little much so and that was the sort of silver lining. Sometimes you can really benefit too from you know when music is coming to life in the studio. Oftentimes these are new songs; they haven't been road tested, and absolutely they're they're coming to life literally. And so sometimes having a little bit more time to contemplate the parts and you know polish things. But this record doesn't sound overly polished it has a really great organic feel and it's interesting to hear you know, i'm not surprised to hear that you guys tracked a lot of the the band stuff live because it's yeah it's live and it's organic but it's also just really crisp and and really well thought out now i'm curious about the songwriting so yeah. before any of the recording starts how do you guys go about songwriting is that more of an individual process is it something you collaborate on from the get-go how does that work yeah so we um it was a little different this time it in the past it uh, things had mostly been you know me or elliot kind of bring a song to the band that's you know mostly finished sure and she you know she sings the songs that she writes and i you know i sing the ones that i write and um this time we, it was much more collaborative. Um, it had been a few years since we'd, you know, we'd recorded um, a, a studio album, and and we just had all these ideas, and we, you know, in late 2019, I think just put them all in a Google Drive or a Dropbox folder or something. Just ev- everyone's ideas, all four mm-hmm. of us, um, and uh, and we were able to just like sort of sculpt from there, and and we didn't really worry about having things 100% done before we got into the studio. We, you know, different songs were at different levels of of complete by the time we got there, but we definitely allowed for some some creative, uh, you know, some new ideas to come through. Uh, More like arrangements in the studio, absolutely arrangement, even lyrics, um, some melodies, um, stuff like that. Like was very. We tried to leave that open because in the past we really had road tested stuff for, you know, um, for a really long time before we would track anything. We would kind of have like, 
two or three songs um, that we would sort of work up. And then once, you know, we had a couple songs, we'd just spend a weekend in the studio just knocking it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was definitely a different thing um, where we had all the songs, but not nearly as done. So, uh, And was that a conscious decision yes. around the, the idea that when you when this record came out, you wanted people to be hearing this stuff for the first time? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple. There's a couple songs we'd done live before. Okay. Some we'd done in very different ways. Okay. Um, Mississippi River changed completely, um, and we'd done Coyote a few times, but um, which is Elliot's just like that's such a stunning tune. It really is. Um, and but so we yeah some some songs like that we really did want to. Um, to make sure that like this version that we were trying to make as good as possible was one of the first things that people heard. But we also didn't know that the pandemic was coming, obviously, so we wouldn't get a chance to play these songs for, you know, eight months or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then we, we would start to play them um, when we would do, we did a couple outdoor shows in, in November of 2020. They were sort of our first ones back. And that was an interesting experience too. Um, you know, because uh, in the past we had always road tested our new songs before we laid them down. This was the like opposite experience. Yeah. Um, like kind of relearning them um, with all the bells and whistles that we'd added. Uh, yeah. Was really cool. It's an interesting decision to make. I feel like it's one that when bands are coming of age a little bit more, they decide to hold songs back for a new record right. because they have more of a fan base. And it's cool, you know. I, I know for us, when we put a new record out, you know, we're several records deep into the concept of not playing songs that anyone has ever heard before. Mm. So this is all yeah. going to be new. And one of the real silver linings of that is maybe you've sacrificed a little bit of what you learn about the music and road testing, but for a band that's always on the road, all of a sudden your show has this amazing infusion of new material and it gives people a reason to come out and see the music again, you know? So absolutely. I think we're finding that too. Yeah. I, I I think that's cool. And, and there's just so much good stuff on this record. Now, how do you approach songwriting yourself when you, when you get to writing, are you more of a lyrics first person or, music first or like what inspires you what gets you moving in a certain direction um it's really idea to idea it changes for me um i used to definitely be a music first kind of person but that was when i was much more uh of a guitar player and less of you know a singer and and uh and definitely less comfortable with writing lyrics um when i was younger um and now it can kind of happen in any way. Um, if I'm playing around on a guitar and I just, you know, hear something, um, you know, it could start there. It could be, it could be a lyric that doesn't actually make it into the song. You know, it could be all kinds of different ideas. Um, what with this, this record, what was really cool was for me was fleshing out other people's ideas. Cause a, a lot of times for me, it's that first, inspiration that doesn't come as consistently to me so um sort of taking something that nathan wrote on the banjo or that elliot wrote um you know the song good days um which we actually put out that was the first one we finished we put that out last june um as sort of a like we got to get something out there (laughs) during the pandemic um but that song came about in a really interesting way where uh, Elliot basically just had the chorus and I wrote I wrote the verses to it. And, you know, that doesn't always work out. You know, the person who wrote the initial thing might not like what, you know, you know what you come up right. with um, or vice versa. Um, but this one, it just like really it all came together. And um, that was like almost more fun for me at this point in my songwriting life. Um uh, at least at the time, than than starting something from scratch, um, uh, it, it you know there's al- already something that you know is good. Like if you if I've chosen to to work on it, then I must think it's it's good already. This thing sure. that uh, that Elliot al- already wrote, um, and so uh, at least there's this foundation of of something cool. So that's that's you know something I really like about the songwriting process. But um, it can kind of happen. 
in all kinds of different ways. Yeah. I've been recently having a lot of fun with other instruments. Um, you can get in a rut with your main, <laughs> yeah, with your I'll, main project, you know. I'll, so for me on guitar, sometimes uh, I'll need to sit down at a piano or play bass or something like that to to have the inspiration kind of strike. Yeah, when I spoke with Oliver Wood a few episodes back, he he echoed that sentiment and he was mm. talking about how we were talking about how songwriting is this multi-tiered process, you know, starting a song is one thing or a tune and right. oftentimes that's that can be the easy part, that can be the fun part. Yeah. But finishing things and you know really building the vessel that will deliver that great chorus or whatever it is can be tough and oftentimes mixing it up, playing another instrument or, yep. or just getting out of your element and, and not doing the thing that you always do can be a really, really valuable tool. So yeah. as, as far as arranging goes, do you guys typically work a lot of that out ahead of time? And, 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 you know, for those people who are listening, when, when we talk about arranging, you know, it's songwriting is sort of step one, but then arranging is this hybrid sort of also songwriting and developing parts for all the people who are in the band or on the session, right. you know, and that, and that requires a lot of work and learning and listening as well. And I'm curious how you guys, how do you guys take that on? Is that usually something that happens before the sessions or do you just bring the songs to the studio and see what happens? Um, it's a combination. Um, usually it's in the, in the, a sort of rehearsal setting and it is like someone has the guitar or, you know, a, a song that they wrote on guitar or in Nathan's case, banjo usually. And it's just like, let's play through it as standard as we can, you know, and, uh, what, what are the chords here? Um, and then just sort of building from building from that, you know, like, that first run through, you can definitely, um, you know, you can definitely hear maybe something's missing here. What instrument should fill what's missing? Mm. Um, you know, does it need a build here in the drums? Does it need a, you know, uh, you know, what are, what are the dynamic, what, uh, the dynamics of the song? What's the flow? Um, and you know, for, for midnight North, because we're a band that's played together for so long, um, especially me and Elliot and Connor, but, you know, Nathan too, um, you know, he joined a, a few years back and, but we've made so much music together that, um, we really trust each other's opinion and we have a language together so we can so, important. so easily talk through stuff. If there is, you know, a, a sticking point, uh, where something's not sounding the way it should. Yeah. Um, and that, that's been really important too and and like we also all play a bunch of instruments um like i was talking about with writing i think i think it's cool um like whoever's written the song even if it's totally through composed they uh, you know we all allow for the rest of the band to to mm -hmm. add their own parts but we also have you know pretty you know um uh, what am I trying to say? We also have ideas for for what the other instruments should do, mm -hmm. um, you know, and 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 ways to communicate what we're what we're hearing, even if it's not my instrument. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, for if sure. If it is a drum thing, I you know I can tell Nathan uh, sort of what what I'm what I'm picturing um, in my head for my song, and then we can try that, and maybe it doesn't work, but at least I have like the we have the communication to to work it out yeah that's that's why i love listening to great bands like you guys and you can hear that you can hear all those mm. common threads you can hear all that experience that you guys have accrued playing together and yeah it comes out live but it also comes out in the way that you figure out to arrange and conceive how these songs should sound we'll get right back to my interview with graham after this very short break Greetings, everyone. This is Chris Pandolfi from the infamous String Dusters. You may also know me as the host of the podcast Inside the Musician's Brain. And today, I'm here to let you know about Factors, delicious, ready-to-eat meals that make eating better every day super easy. 
Wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. And you'll have over 35 different options a week to choose from. That includes keto, calorie smart, vegan, veggie, and more. I had a few great factor meals last week, and they are so quick to prepare, two minutes each. And this is like really good food, restaurant quality food. And the plans are really flexible too, which is huge. So if you want to check it out, head to factormeals.com slash musiciansbrain50 and use code musiciansbrain50 to get 50% off your first box and two free wellness shots per box while your subscription is active. That's code musiciansbrain50 at factormeals.com. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil Story Made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. You guys have great arrangements. This record also has phenomenal production. Uh, I mean, mm, really, yeah. a lot of creativity, a, a real wide range of vibes. Uh, a few things that's, that struck me there. That, that song, The Sailor and the Sea, has got like yeah. this almost like dub kind of indie vibe. Just becoming morning Shadows fading fast against the light and, 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 it, and it's sort of its own thing on the record And then there's just all kinds of stuff There's stripped down vibes That song Give Away The Ghost has got yeah. like a, almost like Kind of Fleet Foxes Like Bon Iver Sort of the, these like ethereal vocals mentioned David Simon Baker talk to me about how the how the production went down how what his style was how much you guys brought to the table and and how the music came to life from a sonic perspective right so well this was the second time we'd worked with Dave he engineered but we self-produced our last album under the lights um and uh, we just had got to talking about uh, with him about how we should work together again because the second time he works with the band, he was saying that he really... We know each other so much better um, and and just uh, he feels more comfortable in those situations, you know, the most yeah. comfortable in situations where it's the second project with a band. Uh, and we definitely felt that. We, we sent him demos... Um, that we'd whipped up. Some of them were, you know, iPhone voice memos, but some of them were, um, you know, more uh, fully fleshed out demos uh, for some of these songs. And um, we sort of just like, he's, uh, he's got a great ear and he like gets every tone to be like, he, he's just the sound master. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, we were, uh, we were able to be just play through the songs and um, and trust that he would you know really capture the performance and the tones and then blend the tones you know into something that um, that is you know greater than the some of the some of the parts basically yeah. um, and you know he had great ideas about um, about the arrangements but some of them we had sort of like come up with on our own. Um, you know, the my favorite one is the first song of the track, Wild Card, uh, which Nathan mostly wrote. But when we had demoed that, just like, I don't know, it must have been in summer of 2019, we'd made this little demo and he played uh, an acoustic guitar tuned uh, to a banjo, basically. So the, the low E was a drone, drone mm-hmm. string and then capoed up. Uh, to whatever key he wanted it to be. Um, and it was just the vibiest, coolest thing. Um, and then we, you know, uh, he also plays drums on it, obviously. So he, uh, we like tracked this thing where like three quarters of the way through the song, uh, you know, the rhythm section comes in, the bass and the, and the drums come in. 
and uh you know like we had this demo that was like a, a rough sketch of how we wanted the arrangement to be and dsb uh dave was just able to to totally take that and and really uh totally flesh it out you know uh, really achieve the sort of thing that we were looking for uh with that song um and that basically happened for all of them it was just you know uh, he'd be the one who'd throw the idea like maybe Graham, if you just played acoustic guitar on this one while, while we tracked, we can add the electric later. Yeah, kind of thing. That'll that'll it'll fill this place in the space of the song, but also um, you know probably get the right performance out of you know Connor on the bass because uh, sure. that's that's the that's where the the interplay is happening or something like that. Even um, on Mississippi River, which is such a big loud rock song now i literally played the acoustic guitar while we were tracking it and so it was you know it's one of those things i remember where it's like we'll get the we'll get the rock added to that song later you know it does it doesn't matter the the engine of this is going to be the acoustic guitar which is you know counterintuitive but it was just um an example for me of how how he works and so what about uh, uh, what about yeah. that what about that first one I mentioned the sailor and the sea the sailor and the sea like how did yeah, that how was, did that come about what was the the genesis of the sound that you guys ended up with because it really has this that was a lot of yeah that was a lot of Connor uh, he wanted it to be modular um, uh, is what he called it um, Connor on on bass who produces a lot of music himself and he loves that sort of dub thing I think I think. Um, DSB, his reference point was the, the there was a root song um, that uh, that he was referencing, sort of uh, at least for like the guitar tones. Um, but yeah, that one. I mean, it's another example of sort of what I'm what I was mentioning. It's just like we had this idea for the vision of the song, and then DSB would help us um, achieve it, basically. So I think that one we sort of tracked backwards. Like I tracked the initial guitar to a click um and connor may have even had may have even built a um like a, a rhythm track um i think in the bridge when it kind of breaks down there um and the vocals shine through there's still this like drum machine kind of sounding thing that's going i think that was maybe the first thing that we played to um and then honestly i mean most of this album is super live um on on the drums and the rhythm section especially but nathan just played that and we just cut like the parts that we that we liked it sounds so um, cool the man, groove man. that that we liked and then just added all kinds of the you know the guitars and the um and and the and the vocals um i love that song with the key change uh, that's my favorite thing i i had mostly through composed that song but like with a, it was kind of folky and acoustic, um, and Connor just added the entire groove, basically, or I had the idea for it. Um, but the main thing that I was I was proud of was the key change. Um, it goes from A minor to D minor, uh, and just right in from my vocal range right into Elliot's. Um, okay, cool. And uh, and just like being able to do that seamlessly, it doesn't really sound as much like a key change as it probably should um just because it's so naturally in each of our ranges um so like uh, yeah i was i was stoked that that all came together and you know the composition com uh, composition with the production and everything yeah. uh was super cool and then um our friend marcus machado played most of the lead guitars and he's a monster um <laughs> uh, uh, and that was just a, an idea. I, uh, you know, there's a lot of guests on this album, and it really was just everyone had their pandemic uh, setup, home recording setup, so <laughs> yeah, I could just right. be like, "Hey, <laughs> you, you want to play on this on this track?" And and a lot of people did. Well, uh, that song actually also has uh, my friend Allison Russell on vocals. Gotta say that on the, cool. the high harmonies. Yeah, well, it yeah. sounds it sounds amazing. Now, you mentioned something uh, interesting a second ago. You said that David Simon Baker used an example track, I think a Roots track. Is that a typical mm -hmm. for him, like to give you guys a directions and and point to an existing track? 
I think that was for him, actually. Oh, okay. Um, trying to get tones um, and like more in the mixing. Uh, he he does a lot of uh, sort of. Um, I'm, I'm trying to f- find the exact words, but like mixing uh, as we go, kind of like trying to get the tone so he doesn't have to like do a lot to each track to make it fit. Um, sure. He's trying to get that before we even get to the mixing process. Um, so the guitar tone doesn't have to be so um, uh, modified or modulated to, to, to fit in with the bass or what, you know, like that kind of stuff. He's like, you know, think, if you know, you have it when it's going down. Yeah, exactly. Looking at the mix. Okay. Yeah. Um, at least when he's in the studio and he's got a picture of sonically where everything, he wants everything to fit. Um, even spatially like in the stereo um, field yeah, yeah. Um, and and in the front to back field uh, with reverbs and everything um, and so I think he had he heard how we were gonna thinking of tackling that song uh, the sailor in the sea he was like I, I there's a guitar tone in his head that he he knew was from something and I forget what root song it was but um it was just, it was that basic, um, I don't know if this guitar's in tune, but the, the like main. That um, sort of like foundational guitar riff mm-hmm. uh, that starts the thing. Um, and just, that's really the only thing I played on guitar on that song. And it was, um, uh, you know, sort of like laid the foundation for it. It's one of my favorite um, tracks on the record for sure. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. me too. Uh, among, Great among, running song. <laughs> nice, nice. I'll have to check that out. And what are some other projects that you mentioned that DSB worked on, just for our listeners? Uh, he's produced um, a bunch of our of our friends here in the Bay Area. Um, I know he's done a bunch of Jackie Green records. Um, he's done a bunch of... Uh, uh, Mother Hips and Nikki Bloom and the Gramblers and ALO, um, yeah, I, not everything that all of those artists have done, but that's, uh, I, you know, that's sort of his, uh, the top line of his CV, kind of. Sure. Well, he he killed it, and you guys killed it, and I really yeah can't recommend this record highly enough. So check out. There's always a story, and it's out on our label, the yeah, on Americana label. Vibes. Americana Vibes, and we've that really worked out. That's awesome. We're yeah. so happy with that. Yeah, um, absolutely. That connection. Us too. You know, it's one of those things. It gives us a chance to shine a light on all the awesome musicians and friends who we've made along the way. And you know, you guys were high on that list, so I'm really, really yeah. glad that worked out. Yeah, um, us too. Us so too. let's um. Let's zoom out from the record and talk a little bit about your life and your life in music in general, because you yeah. uh, you you sit in an interesting position, obviously, yeah. as as Phil Lesh's son, Phil Lesh, of course, bass player for the legendary Grateful Dead, whose influence can't be overstated. And it's amazing, you know, we reflect on it constantly to see that sphere of influence just like continuing to grow as time right? goes it's on. Crazy. You know? it's, it's, <laughs> it crazy. It's it is crazy. It's at this point it's almost like their music is sort of the modern American songbook and for great reason, yeah. you know, there's just endless great songs, lyrics and of course, you know, there's all the other ways that they've influenced not only the music and the jamming, what performances can be about business. It's like so much and it's just got to be it's just got to be, um, you know, amazing to have been a part of that world. And I'm, I'm curious, like, what are some of your earliest memories of being around the dead, the shows, yeah. and, and that whole energy? I mean, so I was eight years old when The Grateful Dead ended, when Jerry Garcia died. Um, so my earliest memory, I mean, I was on tour that whole you know, eight years prior, um, wow. at least when they were out. Um, so, uh, my brother and I like to joke, we saw a lot of first sets, um, cause we were young <laughs> and so we wouldn't stay for the, stay for the end. A lot of me and my uncles and, um, <laughs> <laughs> stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was also born right before in the dark came out and touch of gray came out. So, 
a turning um, point for sure. Yeah. So by the time I like have any, you know, real memories that it's, it's of the, like it's huge. that last huge stadium yeah. selling out stadiums for multiple nights, kind of a, uh, kind of a thing. And yeah, I don't, it was just sort of, you know, what my family did, you know, all the, all the other guys in the band are, and their families are, you know, their aunts and uncles and, you know, uh, my dad's friends to me, you know? Um, so it's, um, yeah, it was, it was an interesting, uh, life, but, you know, um, it, it was just what the family did. And, and, uh, I think it was pretty normal when we were home, you know, <laughs> so were you uh, actually, in terms of growing up, so, were you actually uh, on tour and at like all the shows for, for, for those I don't years. know about all I but a lot yeah, yeah. Um, wow. uh, my my parents used it kind of um, yeah they they were my you know my mom and my brother and I came basically to all of all of them which you know I think if it had been an earlier era of the Grateful Dead that probably wouldn't have been the case yeah um, but they were able to and my dad wanted us there so we were we were there and, you know, we, I think my folks used it as a, as a way to, you know, take us to every museum, <laughs> uh, you know, right. all, along the, uh, along the route and, and sort of give us these experiences that went beyond just like, you know, the hotels and the airports and the, yeah. and the shows. Well, eight is pretty young, but yeah, not, not that young. I mean, did you have a sense of the gravity of the situation. I mean, obviously you're observing these no. mon- monster shows, but yeah. the bigger I, legacy I, of the band and the music. I remember a little bit um, once when when Jerry did pass away and just the, like, the fact that it was on the news and that there was this obvious outpouring of grief from around the country and world um, was, that's a, you know that's a thing, that's you know, for, thing, yeah. for even for an eight, eight year old. Um, and I definitely noticed, but honestly, then, you know, I get a little older than that and I'm in middle school and high school and no one's listening to the Grateful Dead, you know, like <laughs> I, my, I had friends here in Marin, you know, um, the, my friend was in Huey Lewis in the news and, you know, like, or my, my friend's dad was in Huey Lewis in the news and like all these, you know, there's a lot of folks in, uh, sort of in my dad's, sort of uh, like maybe his peers or you know you uh, you call them you know other working musicians um, from the time and um, it didn't seem that much different to what my dad did and then you know you sort of uh, fast forward a little farther to like dead fifty or something like that and it's like oh actually at that time everyone was secretly a deadhead, (laughs) you know, when I was 15 and I thought my dad's music was, you know, this niche thing, um, that it happened so long ago. Um, Yeah. Not exactly. Secretly (laughs) all of my, all of the cool kids in high school were actually listening to, to like tapes from the seventies or something, you know, like, um, it was, it was a weird thing to like then as an adult, um, have this sort of realization that like, Oh no, they, they um they endured and they became you know the face of american music you know yeah and the the culture was such a such a big part of it and everyone secretly was in uh you know was a deadhead Uh, (laughs) right 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 i know (laughs) i know i know exactly what you mean it's like it it comes of age like it was always cool and then there might be a moment where you realize looking back like Yeah. yeah You know, if we're calling this a niche thing, that's a pretty big niche, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, but it was like all these, like, you know, the the hip skate, skater kids are like, you know, in 2002 would never have admitted that they were listening to the dead, but apparently they were. Yeah. Because now they're all at shows, you know? <laughs> right, 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 exactly. Well, your dad has always been so great to us. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's been it's been really cool establishing a, a connection with him and playing at, at Terrapin with him. And and also, I, I love what he's done post-Grateful Dead. You know, they, they've all sort of taken their own paths. But 
Phil Lesh and Friends has been yeah. this kind of staple of, uh, you know, the festival scene, but it's always something different. And, yeah. you know, my my enduring Phil story that I always tell is when we did Phil and Friends with, with him at Lockin yeah. a few years back. And I wish I'd been to that to see that one. Did you, did you hear what happened? You know, his flight was... Yes. His flight was messed up, and at Lockin they have the rotating stage, and it was Joe Russo and... Um, Paige and Fishman and Derek Trucks sat in and um, Anders Osborne. And we're on the backside of that rotating stage. We've already pushed Showtime. And here comes your dad in a police escort. And the crowd is like so amped up and and we're facing backstage, but the stage rotates. And Phil gets, you know, right, goes right from the police escort, comes up on stage you know, boom, 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 checks a few notes of the bass and then boom, we're spinning, we're turning, you know? And it was just like I, a real pinch me moment, you know, because yeah. for so many reasons, I mean, playing this huge festival and the guys from Fish, but it was, it really made an impression on me just what a, what a badass and what a pro <laughs> your dad is, you know? And, and, and still to this day, so he's 80, 81, 81 now. Yeah. And, and, still just just killing it as hard as ever with no plans to slow down it seems like it's unbelievable yeah i mean basically since terrapin started so the last 10 years um you know he he doesn't tour the same way and Mm -hmm. that's that's been honestly awesome like i wish we could all do that where we just like once a month we go to a city uh, for a weekend run, right? Like I, I love touring, but yeah. when I play with him for those shows, it's like, oh, this is the way to do it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but like within each show, like yeah, I mean, we just did um, three shows at the the new Brooklyn Bowl in Nashville. Um, Were those the ones and, with the Dawes? Yeah, with yeah. it was me and my dad and Nikki Bloom and Dawes, basically. And Dawes, okay, uh, how was it? Four, it was amazing, and you know. We haven't, because of the pandemic, obviously done a lot of shows, especially travel shows, um, uh, in a while. And, you know, my dad's still tons of energy at the end of the second set, you know, when it's longer than we've planned and like the same thing, you know, he's still doing two sets and, uh, we're all more tired than him, you know, and I'm, (laughs) I'm 34. (laughs) So, so Dawes, for example, there, there's an interesting example of a band that they've obviously cut their own path, but are they all deeply versed in the Grateful Dead stuff? They showed up extremely uh, prepared. Cool. So I, I don't know what they're, I, I mean, I assume they seem so excited to, to play this music. Um, and, and yeah, I think they, yeah, they, they were big fans even before they got the gig. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's so cool seeing each new um you know each new band basically who or or musician who comes in sort of like um i don't know get getting immersed in the phil and friends world it's a different world probably than each other little sub sub world of the grateful dead world because everyone brings their own of course knowledge and experience with the music um, as a listener and as a as a musician playing the music um, to it, and then you know, kind of get uh, get get exposed to the fill world, uh, and it, it it sort of changes a little bit. Um, maybe you learn different songs, or maybe maybe my dad doesn't have a set list ready quite yet, so you have to like <laughs> you know be roll on your toes and yeah, roll with it, um, and that sort of stuff like just kind of constantly happens and. Uh, it's cool seeing how everyone sort of uh, reacts to it, and and the the folks that that uh, yeah that that really get get into it, and then you know you see people adding dead songs into their <laughs> into their repertoire. I know we have going back to do their yeah, it's it's crazy, and um, or or you know I um, like the Dawes guys were just talking about how much more jamming they're doing and it sounds great um but just from like a little bit of exposure to this music it sort of changes how they play and how they think about their own music which is absolutely something that that happened to me that's what it's all about once you finally start playing playing the music obviously i'd listen to it forever but yeah yeah i know that that type of influence 
is it 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 definitely strikes a chord with me because there's an amazing fusion of you know looseness with the music you know when, when you're playing i know when yeah. we've been on stage with phil it's like you really do need to be on your toes but within these beautiful forms and these beautiful totally. chords and lyrics and it's like it, it's just an amazing Fusion. I could only imagine what the list of people that you've played with in Phil and Friends looks like. I mean, yeah, it's, it's got to be a mile long. I, I haven't really stepped back and thought about it, but yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty wonderful. Um, any any and, unique you know, names stick out on that list for you? Hmm. I, I off the top of my head, probably not. Um, I mean, it's it's all it's all people who have been in other Phil and Friends, you know. Like, um, I mean, I love. Uh, I'm trying to even think. Hasn't I have, mean, have you done any with Schofield? Yep, Sco is absolutely up there. Um, uh, I mean, we've done double bass stuff with my dad and Mike Gordon. That was super cool. Obviously, every we, yeah. time Bobby comes around. Oh, you know who was amazing. Um, one of my favorite people and musicians, um, Ben Montench from the yeah, Heartbreakers. Of course, did, piano. Yeah, did a run with us um, for my dad's birthday at the Cap, uh, the Capitol Theater back in, I want to say in March of 2019. And he was amazing. He played the music like no one ha- like has. You know, it was what do you so mean by that? perfectly him. Um, he he didn't play it he didn't copy anyone's okay. any of the very many Griffith keyboard players sure. style but he knew the songs inside and out so it was it was really interesting to see how he had learned the songs and gotten inside of the songs sure. while not while not just copying what someone had done before yeah. um he really brought his own um yeah, his own style to it in a way that just like, uh, I don't know. Uh, John Molo said that everything he plays on, he makes it sound like a record. Um, and it was really interesting to hear that with Grateful Dead music in a live jam context. Sure. Um, and just, he had a couple moments, like he did this whole extended outro of Unbroken Chain that was insane um, and just brought the house down. He sang one song, it was China Doll, and it was like, like, not a dry eye in the in the house um kind of a thing and um yeah that one was really cool um yeah there's too many so many you know know. um and it's not always with my dad i mean the whole terrapin scene is is just like people just want to jam even after their show in the in the main room or something like that they'll come down to the to the bar and um yeah, pretty cool, man. It's pretty cool. It's pretty, it's pretty, pretty, pretty cool. lucky. I know. Yeah. I know. I know we're certainly feel very lucky to be a part of that. And just to have been able to cross paths with you guys so many times, you know, it, it just yeah. it feels like forever. I can't even remember when the first time we, you know, rolled with you guys, but it's, it's just, yeah, like, I want to say my brother, my Brian and, and, uh, Ross and Coford's old band, American, American Jubilee, Be- opened, American Jubilee. Uh, that's right. Yeah. They, uh, I think they opened for you all, uh, pretty early on too. Uh, yeah. Back when that band still existed. Well, um, it was a great band. Yeah. Well, here's to many more and yeah, and, absolutely. uh, you know, I can't wait to, to do it again. And, and as I've said many times already today, the new record is just tremendous, brother. I really, I really appreciate yeah. all the kind words and absolutely. I'm so stoked that, that you like it yeah um, absolutely so stoked for all the music that americana vibes is putting out it's so awesome to be part of the fam i know you guys are you guys are right in there so everyone go out and check out there's always a story check out midnight north and graham thanks so much for joining me today yeah thank you for having me all right that's going to do it for this episode of inside the musician's brain that's going to do it for this season of inside the musician's brain huge thanks to all my amazing guests this season and huge thanks to you guys for tuning in want to give another shout out really quick to osiris media and americana vibes for helping me make the pod happen and to our season-long sponsor this year the amazing emg pickups 
I'm going to take a couple months off, regroup, get back into some Dusters shows, start to potentially work on a new solo project. And then, of course, wind my way back to the podcast. I'm really excited about some things that I already have brewing for season three, some great guests, and just just excited to keep it going. Thank you all again so much for listening, and I'll see you back here in a few months for the next season of Inside the Musician's Brain. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out.